Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8. You guys act like it's raining and cold outside. Look at all of you. Everyone's nestled right in, relaxing. Don't fall asleep on me yet. Give me at least 15 minutes, all right? John chapter 8. If you're visiting today, my name is Mark. I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here. We're really glad you're with us this morning. Uh, A, we're glad you worship Jesus. And B, we're really blessed that you'd worship him with us. And so you encourage us, and we hope we can encourage you. Uh, We have been, in the last five weeks, in this long gospel series, this is the fifth week in chapter 7 and 8 of the Gospel of John. Uh, And it is such a dense passage as John begins to make the turn from Jesus' ministry in toward the walk toward Jerusalem where he'll be crucified. And he's pointing out to us the dynamics, the interpersonal dynamics that were taking place between the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, and Jesus. And what was rubbing that relationship raw and making it awkward and hard. And and we've been focusing on that. Michael DeFazio, uh, several weeks ago, in fact five weeks ago, told us that at the beginning of chapter 7, the question was, is he the Messiah? And if he is, why won't he come out as the Messiah at this Feast of Tabernacles outside of Jerusalem? By the end of chapter 8, this one, these two chapters are this one continuous moment in time carried out over a few days. In those days, they go from wondering if he is the Messiah and why he won't come out as Messiah to he says he's the Messiah, we need to get rid of him. A huge change of events and turn that displays what Jesus came to do. You see, last week, if you were with us, Jesus told this same audience that he's the difference between life and death. He's the difference between freedom and bondage. That if they did not trust him, they did not follow him and allow him to lead them, that they would not discover life and they would die in their sins. And there was this great moment. In fact, he says in verse 47, whoever belongs to God, hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. He said, the reason that you don't understand God is you won't listen to what I'm telling you about him. And because you won't listen to me, you don't know who he is. This is a very provocative statement. So this week I had to run a personal errand and I ran into uh, the Walmart and I had to pick up a couple things and I had one of those little tiny carts and I just threw a few things in there because I couldn't carry them all and I had to get in a line where I, uh, the, the checkout lines or the self-checkouts were all full. So anyway, I got in line and there's this beautiful little girl. I imagine she's between 14 and 18 months. She had red curly hair. She was a little chunky thing. She was adorable and she was flirting with me. So I liked her. And we were trading back and forth, and I was making her smile, and she was just absolutely beautiful, and she was with her granny. Now, I know she was with her granny because her granny called herself her granny about 90 times. She was very proud to be this child's grandmother. And they were having this engagement, and I was flirting with this little girl, and she reached over, you know, to that row of candy where they, this impulse counter, and she grabbed this massive candy bar, and I was proud of her. But anyway, she grabbed this candy bar and pulled it toward her chest, and it was hers. And her granny grabbed it from her and said, no, sweetheart, you can't have it. That's not, that's too much for you. That's too big. And she went, she went to put it away. The little girl slapped her grandma. Yeah, yeah, now you're with me. I was like, oh, this is good. This is, be, this is better than work. And so I stood there watching this going, what's going to happen next? And the granny looked at her and she said, honey, you don't slap granny. And she grabbed the little girl's hand and she kissed the back of it. She put her hand down. The little girl swatted her again, and I thought, this is getting better. (laughs) 
she grabbed her hand and kissed the back of it again. And she said, Granny loves you. You don't hit your granny. What should you do? And this beautiful little girl reached out and took her granny's wrist, put her hand to her mouth and kissed it. And he set it down. Now, that's not how I thought that was going to play out (laughs) and was slightly disappointed. But anyway, I was watching this going, interesting, where's my dad? Because I'd love for my dad to see what just happened. (laughs) You see, what this grandmother did is not what my first instinct would have been to do. My first instinct was to show authority, to show what's right, to teach in a very hard way. But this grandmother made a beautiful choice. She made a choice to express you don't hit because you love rather than you just don't hit. What I want you to see today, and we're going to take a, a, probably a novel approach to this text, not because I'm looking for something different, but there are similar themes that have been playing out for the last three weeks, and I want to show you how Jesus responds to us as we respond to him. And you'll find out that Jesus does it a little differently than most of us would, and his works, and ours won't. So he said, you don't know who God is because you can't hear God. And the reason you can't hear God, Jesus said, is because you won't listen to me. He's revealing who he is. And the crowd doesn't love it. In fact, what I'm going to show you, and I'm going to try to do it more briefly than I did first hour, is I want to show you that there are three things that occur in rotation. There are three scenes, and three three things happen in each scene. There is this moment where there's a dismissive reaction from the crowd. Jesus declares a truth, and then he offers a gracious invitation. So there's dismissal of Jesus, there's a truth, and there's grace. And I want to show you this in all three scenes, and then make an application to you and I. So let's begin. Scene 1, verse 48. The Jews answered him. Remember, he said that you can't hear God because you won't listen to me. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? What? Stop there for a moment and let that sink in. The Son of God, miracle worker, healing, casting out demons, calming nature, feeding thousands, taking care of people, raising people from the dead. Aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Aren't we right in saying this? They had been saying this to everybody. Jesus said, I am not possessed by a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. I tell you the truth. If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The dismissive response. Jesus says, you can't hear God because you won't listen to me. And their response is, aren't you a Samaritan and demon-possessed? You see, he can't be the Messiah if he's a Samaritan, right? Because the Messiah has to be what? Anyone? Jewish. So by questioning his heritage, it goes back to what we talked about last week, if you were with us. They even questioned, they said, we know who our father is. And they weren't talking about Abraham. They were saying to Jesus, we know your history. We know that Joseph's not your daddy. In fact, we don't even know who your father is, and you don't even know who your father is. He may well be a Samaritan, which means you can't be the Messiah. And on top of that, you're demon-possessed. Now, we might think that the demon-possession would be the hard hit. The Samaritan's probably harder. Because they're drawing this question out in public. They're attacking who he is as a man. They're questioning his legitimacy and his value. They're going right for the soul of a man. They're going after his pride. And they, they bring this to mind, his paternity, his purpose, his heritage. Their response is not humble and repentant. Jesus has said, you're acting like your father, the, the devil, because you're denying the truth. 
And he corrects them with that. Instead of them saying, well, what are we supposed to do? Instead, they go right after him. And then Jesus declares truth. Remember the second, second part of each one of these scenes is there is a dismissive response. There's truth and there's grace. The truth, Jesus tells him who he is and that he can take us from slaves to sons. You see, we need to understand this morning, Jesus did not come to change our behavior. He came to change our status. And if you're just simply living your life trying to do a better version of you to honor Jesus, you've misunderstood. He wants to take us from slaves to sons. He wants to take us from slaves to daughters. He wants us no longer to wonder if we're okay with God. He wants us to have a relationship with God. He wants to change our status. So he says, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. What he's offering them here in a very unique moment is he's saying, look at what I've done and have I ever done anything that's dishonored the glory of God? Have I ever done anything to draw God's glory to myself? Have I ever put myself over and above the Father? And you know what the answer is. The answer is no, you never have. Where Jesus could have come off the top rope the minute they called him a Samaritan or they called him demon-possessed, Jesus, I mean, he had all the power in the world. He could have killed one of them. Just a boom, puff of smoke. That would have worked. But like the grandma in the store, Jesus is just gentle. And he chooses to love. In fact, Peter, now remember, I'm going to give you all this little background so you don't lose me. Remember who Peter is? He's the guy that lopped off a dude's ear when he was mad. He's the guy that wanted to firebomb a town. He wanted to fight at the drop of a hat. Peter says in his later years writing to the early church, When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. Peter noticed that when Jesus had a chance to tag them, when he had a chance to to produce a snarky response or pin him against the wall with how right he was, he instead chose something different. He chose to love with truth. And, And you don't have to separate those two. Don't make your testimony about Jesus so true that it's angry and harsh and harmful. Make it so true that the love of Jesus pours out when the truth is revealed. And that's what Jesus did. You see, he says to them, I'm not seeking my own glory. I've never stolen from God. In fact, he said, I've hidden my own glory. And isn't that what the incarnation is all about? Why did God have to come to earth in the form of a man? He came to earth in the form of a man so that his glory would be taken from him and offered to us. In John 17, verse 24, he even will pray this in the final night of his life. Father, I have finished the work you gave me. Now restore to me the glory I had with you before the world began. In other words, he's telling us, I took off the glory that was rightfully mine so that I could live amongst you and show you what it is to know God. And I revealed God to you, not by my own glory, but by simply showing you who God is in what I did and what I said. And you would think at that moment, that these religious leaders would stop and go, he's right, he's never done anything to usurp God. But they don't. You see, he didn't come to receive glory, he came to receive humiliation. A humiliation you and I deserved. But he loved us, he exposed our evil, he bore our sin, he felt our shame, and he died our death. He did all of this. And some people will see it and honor it, and some people will refuse to see it. So he's given them the truth. Now he gives them an invitation. Verse 51, 
I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. This is his response to them when they called him a Samaritan, when they called him demon-possessed, when they were tagging him in public and knocking him down in public and ruining his reputation over and over and over. Jesus responds, and this is what he's saying, it's not too late to turn to the truth. Do you hear it? Do you see how gracious that is in context? They dismiss him, he teaches truth, and then he offers them hope. He says, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. This is, this is the model of how we're to respond. We're not to go for the ultimate mic drop. We're not supposed to drop that one big statement that shows people how wrong they are and go, boom, deal with it. We, Jesus didn't do that. Jesus stayed and he offered and he offered and he offered until the offer would not be heard. But he still would offer. Scene two, verse 52. At this, the Jews exclaimed, Now we know that you are demon-possessed. Abraham died and so did the prophets. Yet you say that if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Listen to the question. Who do you think you are? They've asked a question he's been trying to answer. And they asked the question he's going to answer. Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim is your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. The dismissive response is, you are demon possessed. They're hearing what he's saying, but they're not listening. They were dishonoring him for no other reason than their pride. They had all the evidence they needed. God had documented with the evidence around them, the miracles, the teachings, and all that was promised in the Old Testament about him, it was all made clear. He had, God was reaffirming this over and over. In fact, in John chapter 5, we covered this a few months ago, in John chapter 5, Jesus said, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. You can't separate the two. Jesus is the only way to the Father because he's the revelation of who God is in our world. And they ask, who do you think you are? And then Jesus declares truth. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father who you claim is your God is the one who glorifies me. And then verse 55 is so crucial, especially in the culture in which we live today, where it is simply suggested that all you have to do is believe Jesus is telling the truth, and that's what your life is to be, just believing. But believing has such a different connotation to it. In verse 55, Jesus said, I do know him and I keep his word. The Son of God is telling us that his relationship with his Father is founded on a loving, responsive obedience, not simply acknowledging that he exists. Acknowledging there is a God, every culture in the world from the beginning of time has acknowledged there is a greater power. So Jesus is saying that to keep his word, if you keep my word, if you do what I ask, if as I do what the Father asks, as I've taken his glory and reflected it to you, he says you can do the same. It's the affirmation and proof of obedience. So Jesus gives him truth. You say you claim he's your God, yet you don't do what God says. And yet in spite of that truth, there's a gracious invitation. Verse 56, your father Abraham rejoices at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. My day. That might pass us by when we read it. In my study and research, I found something fascinating. 
I've been told this before, but when I did the research, it was pretty incredible. If you look up the phrase, the day of the Lord, or, or my day, or the day, in the Old Testament prophecies, it's always about the Messiah. It's always about the day that God comes back and begins the process of redeeming his world back to the perfect creation. And Jesus gives this wonderful moment here. He says, your father, Abraham, you say that he's your father. I want you to know that your father then rejoiced knowing I was coming. You see, Abraham knew back in Genesis chapter 12 that when God made a promise to him that from his seed would come the one who would save the world, That Abraham knew that just as God asked him to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, when he looked over in the thicket of the bush and there was the ram, and he took that ram and he offered it as a sacrifice, and God was pleased with that sacrifice, Abraham knew that one day God would bring a sacrifice to the earth that would calm all of our hearts and wash away all of our sins. He knew by faith that God would do a miraculous work like he promised him. And Jesus just said, Abraham knew I was coming, and he rejoiced at my day, my day. That day, the day of salvation, the day that God puts everything right. You see, they said, Abraham's our father. I know he's not yours. And Jesus said, isn't that funny? Because your father rejoiced over me. And he offers them a hope. Where's the hope found in that? He said, he saw it and he was glad. See, what Jesus wants us to do is to see what he's offering us and receive it gladly. He doesn't want us to receive it with our bottom lips stuck out, like he's taken our candy bar away from us. He wants us to receive it with gladness of heart, knowing that there is nothing that we can do. You see, the reason that the Jews in Jesus' day, now pay attention to me, if you disconnected, come back. The reason the Jews disconnected from Jesus is they were trying to save themselves. They thought if they just lived right and did right, not only would they please God, but they would be better than everybody else. They would be an example to live by. And Jesus is showing them, no, even Abraham, who you say is the penultimate person of faith, even Abraham needed me to do what I'm doing. You see, the reason we reject Jesus as Savior is because we're trying to be our own. We're trying to save ourselves by being better versions of ourselves, by trying harder, by giving more, by doing, doing, doing. There's nothing wrong with obedience unless your obedience is tried to impress God rather than please him. Scene three, verse 57. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. What's their dismissive reaction? Well, first they tell him he's a Samaritan, then they tell him he's demon-possessed, and they know he's demon-possessed, and, and here they turn around and they say, You're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham. See, they're missing it. They're missing the point that he's giving because they won't identify who he is. They don't believe that God would send a Messiah who wasn't a power broker, who wasn't a military hero. They couldn't believe that the Messiah would not come down and applaud them for how noble and good they were. Their dismissive reaction is, how do you know about Abraham's joy? You've never met Abraham. You're a fool and a liar. They had no room for faith. The same faith that caused Abraham to go where he did not know he was going, to do what he did not know he was to be called to do, and to trust God the entire way, they could not. They could not take the evidence of the miracles. They would not take the teachings of Jesus, and they would not open themselves up that he was the Son of God. So let's pause the tape. How are we doing with that? It's really easy for me to tell you all they weren't doing. It's harder for me to tell you all I'm not doing. 
Am I looking at the evidence of Jesus sincerely? Am I responding to him with faith and obedience to each and everything he asks? There's nothing in the scripture that Jesus calls us to that does not bring God glory and bring us peace and hope. So we look at the Pharisees and they're dismissive by saying, you're not even 50 years old. There's no way you knew Abraham because they've closed their mind to the fact that God may be doing something in their midst and they need to trust it. We need to ask ourselves the same question. And then Jesus declares truth. Verse 58, I tell you the truth before Abraham was born, I am. Oh, and in the English that doesn't translate as pretty as it is, but let me tell you what he just said here. In Exodus chapter 3, when Moses was standing before the burning bush, if you don't know the story, I'd love for you to go back this week and just turn to the book of Exodus and read chapter 3, and you're going to see this wonderful moment where God appears to Moses. He says to Moses, I want you to go. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do, Moses. It's not a big deal. You have no weapons, you have no army, you have no authority, you have no power. But I want you to go to the most powerful man in the world who has armies and authority and people doing everything he wants. And he can have you killed if he wants. I want you to go to him and I want you to tell him, let all the Jewish people go because they don't belong to you, they belong to God. You see, Pharaoh thought he was a God. Pharaoh felt like he was from the descendants of God. Said He was not just human, he was God-man. And Moses is like, oh, okay, I killed somebody and Pharaoh's got a warrant out for my arrest. I know who he is and I know his temper. I lived in his home. He says, I have no authority. I have no power. I don't even speak well. What am I supposed to do? Who am I supposed to say sent me? Do you remember what God told him? Tell him I am sent you. I am. That seems weird. Like in grammar, that doesn't seem like a proper title of somebody. But here's what I want you to know. They just questioned Jesus. And they just simply said, how do you know what Abraham loved? You're not older than Abraham. He's been dead and gone. And how, how do you say at 50 years of age, you, you know somebody who was born a thousand years before you? And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, if I graded this on a paper in one of my classes, I would correct the English. The English should say, I was. Not I am, that makes no sense. Unless you're quoting God, and when Moses said, how do I talk to Pharaoh? Tell him the God who's always existed is telling the God who thinks he exists, he's not God. So the whole moment here, notice Jesus doesn't say I was, he said I am. Here's what he's telling them. He said, I am uncaused. It's what the theologians say, I am self-existent, I am self-determined, I depend on nothing and no one. Death has no power over me, I have power over it. I did exist when Abraham lived, and I exist after him, and I existed before him. I have always been. I am the uncreated God who created all things, including you. Now, you might think, well, that seems abstract. Oh, it was an abstract church. Because look at their response. They instantly knew what he had just said. They weren't tricked by the language. They weren't tricked by the background. They understood completely when he said, before Abraham, I am They knew that he just called himself God. And the punishment for blasphemy back in the Levitical code was to take stones to drag this person outside the city and beat him to death because of what he said. So what are we supposed to do with that? Well, here's the truth. When Jesus tells you who he is, you have two choices, crown him or kill him. There's no in between. Ignore him is not a reasonable option. C.S. Lewis said he's either a madman or he's the Messiah. You either crown him or you kill him. And they decided what they must do, they would kill him. 
So what about the gracious invitation? This is tricky because I told you all three pieces were in all three scenes, right? There would be dismissal, there'd be truth, and there'd be a gracious invitation. And in the third scene, there's no gracious invitation. It simply says Jesus hid himself and left. He got out of the area. While the crowd was in a panic, Jesus just slipped away. Now, there's about four times in the Gospels that Jesus just disappears. One time, they get him to the edge of a cliff, and then it says he walked through them. I need to know more details. How about you? That has always frustrated the fire out of me. What did he do? Like, put everybody in a time freeze and walk through and got on the other side, snapped his fingers, and they're all like, where'd he go? Or did he give him like the stink eye and they knew not to mess with him? I don't know what he did, but he got away. He just hid himself. And those words frighten me because I'm fearful in my own life that if I don't start acknowledging at a deeper level who Jesus is, that he will become hidden to me. Why? Because he doesn't want to love me? No. You see, the gracious invitation is here, but it's rejected. And a gracious invitation that's rejected is worthless. All you have is the truth. And Jesus said in verse 39, for judgment I came into this world. You see, you either crown him or kill him. You either accept his grace or you reject it and face judgment. Knowing full well that you can have grace, Jesus will give you what you ask for. He will give you grace or he will give you judgment. And it all comes down to what we do with him. So what about you and I? When the world dismisses Jesus, do we stand on the truth? Do we offer them grace? Do we stand on the truth for ourselves? When the world makes fun of what Jesus taught as if it's become old-fashioned and out of, out of sorts, it's not real anymore, it doesn't work anymore, do we stand on the truth and offer them a gracious invitation to try it, to reach out by faith and experience it? Our world says, prove it to me. The only way you can prove that faith is real is to live in it. It, there's no, no promises that everything's going to work perfectly, but there is a promise that Jesus has everything under his control. You see, here's what I want you to do. I want you to understand who Jesus is, not because you're scared of going to hell. So many people today seem to be motivated when they talk to me. They seem to be motivated by escaping judgment and not going to hell. Hell should not be the reason you follow Jesus. It shouldn't be fear of hell that makes you follow Jesus. It should be the fear that you never learn to live. You never experience peace. You never experience purpose. You're simply going along the motions. You're a better version of yourself than you were 10 years ago. But if you're lost in your sin and you have no answer for the epidemic of what sin's done to your soul, what good is being a better version of a sinner who's going to die in their sin? Are you a follower of Jesus? follower of Jesus puts into practice what Jesus asks. You don't have to be perfect. You have to be willing. And the crowd that day stopped being willing to understand anything and receive anything he offered. And so the gracious invitation ended. For those of you who are not followers of Jesus, I ask you today, choose, crown him or kill him. Make a choice today as to whether or not you want to invest your life in following this man who's offering you something you don't deserve, but he'll walk with you. And for some of us who have been followers of Jesus and we stopped, we just kind of coasted, we, we, we don't know what our next step is, so we're just doing what we've always done and we go to church and we acknowledge that Jesus is cool and Jesus is good and he's a better man than I'd ever be and so that's what I'll just worship him that way. Don't repent. 
you want to be a disciple of Jesus, do what he says. Experience it, try it, trust it, follow him. And he says, and I'll bring you life. Without me, you die in your sins. And that means even for those of you who once made a profession of faith, today might be the day that you ask someone to pray for you as you struggle to come out of the darkness into the light and remain in the light. And for others, you don't have a community of faith and strength. You've tried on your own and you're not good on your own. The darkness comes in too quickly and you just need community. Christ Church would love to be a place that journeys with you, not for you, but with you. A group of fellow believers who want to strengthen one another and work with one another and grow with one another in the worst moments of life and in the best celebrations of life. And if you're a believer in Jesus and you're a disciple of Christ, but, but this isn't your home family, and you'd like to be a part of this ministry and this movement of people in this community, I'm going to encourage you to go out into the foyer and go to our Welcome Center and simply say, I'd like to know more about being a part of Christ Church. And you can do that this morning. And if you want to be prayed with or you want to have a conversation with someone about becoming a disciple, then I ask you to meet me out in the corner. I'll be out in the foyer. When you walk out of here, go to your left. You'll see a bunch of us standing there. No high pressure, just a conversation. Because today we get the choice. Crown him or kill him. I know what I'm going to choose. How about you? Because when I reached out and swatted at him, he grabbed me and embraced me with a kiss that offers hope. And he'll do the same thing for you. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.